Are you new to North Shore? Do you forget things that happened more than a week ago? Do you want to fully engage in Missions Week? Do you like fun recaps? If you answered yes to any of these, then this review is for you. Now, you might ask, why do we do Missions Week? Shouldn't it be Missions Life? Well, yes, but it's important sometimes to refocus on our priorities. And pretty clearly, one of them should be reaching others. It was so important to Jesus that he died for it, for us. So let's refocus on the importance of missions as we examine what we learned before. Two years ago during Missions Week, we first learned to see, wrestling with the concept of who the gospel is for and challenging our own ideas. We learned about Peter coming to a different understanding of the gospel as he allowed the spirit to work in his heart, teaching him to see things he already knew in a new way and seeking the same thing for ourselves. Last year, we learned to speak as we saw the Spirit working. As we examined Peter's journey towards communicating with people who are critical of what the Holy Spirit was doing in him, he responded in love and thoughtfulness, even when it was a difficult situation, when tension was around him and people were divided. Not like we know what that's like today. His speaking out brought freedom to many people, and we practiced this ourselves. So now that we know more about how to see and how to speak, please join us as we learn to be. Good morning. I'm Nancy Brewer, Director of Missions and Outreach here at North Shore. Isn't it wonderful that it's gradually staying light later? Just a reminder that next week we start daylight savings time, so we'll adjust ourselves accordingly. Well, welcome. Welcome to part two of 2020 Missions Week, learning to be living it out. We're continuing on our journey with the early church in the book of Acts, and I want to invite the ushers forward to distribute Bibles to anyone who would like to receive it. This week as well, we're in Acts 15, verses 1 to 21, and we're going to hear from a variety of voices on our theme as we continue to observe and learn from the struggles the early church faced as they were growing and welcoming Gentiles into the church. We're gonna start by again looking at Acts chapter 15, so if you'll open there, you can also follow on the side screens. Our text for these two weeks has been Acts 15, verses one to 21. Hear the word of the Lord. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers Unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And Paul, and after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you 
that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophet agree, as it is written, After this I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord, and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. So as we can see, there is a struggle. Some of the Jewish Pharisees who have been converted to Christ were teaching that unless a person was circumcised according to the Mosaic practice, they couldn't be saved. We just read verse one. Unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. In verse five, some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. This group of Pharisees were putting their customs and traditions on people who were not Jewish and who did not need to follow them. Barnabas and Paul had the position stated in verse 11, but we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. Two groups. Both groups were Jewish believers. Both groups were within the church. And yet, they had a radically different perspective on how a Gentile enters into a relationship with Jesus. So the church in Antioch decided to send Barnabas and Paul with some other believers to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. Now Barnabas and Paul had been commissioned and sent out on their missionary journey by the church in Jerusalem. It was necessary to talk with the apostles and elders about this question because it was a fundamental theological difference, a theological disagreement over how Gentiles, non-Jewish people, are saved. Paul and Barnabas knew that requiring every person who wanted to follow Christ to observe the entire Jewish law would nullify grace. Putting Jewish customs and traditions on people who did not need to follow them 
would endanger the mission to the Gentiles. And it would ultimately endanger and inhibit the spread of God's kingdom. Thus, the council at Jerusalem to decide the matter. Today as well within the church, we hold different views and perspectives. Now quite often, our different perspectives are not on fundamental theological issues. They're not on salvation issues, often our differing perspectives. Generally, our differences arise from putting our own view, our expectations of what we think is correct Christian behavior and conduct onto other people, both within and outside of the church. When we do this, we end up in the same place as some of the Pharisees in Acts 15. We make the Christian life more about behavior than grace. And we try to govern behavior rather than trusting in and letting the Holy Spirit do that work, which is his work and his alone. And I know, I've tried it. I am so willing to be the Holy Spirit's assistant. (laughs) It generally does not go well. Ask my husband. Just as the ministry to the Gentiles would have been endangered by this practice, so too our ministry, our outreach, our efforts to help can suffer when we insist on people, both within and outside of the church, adhering to our non-salvation issues of behavior, our non-salvation issues of Christian practice. Angela Edwards serves with the Lord's Little Cooker Every Saturday morning at eight o'clock in downtown Everett, the Lord's Little Cooker serves breakfast to anyone who comes. They also offer clothing and toiletries, and they offer a listening ear, prayer, and the love of Jesus. Angela is going to share with us how the folks serving at the Lord's Little Cooker are learning not to put Christian practice and expectation on the people they are serving. Every week, I get to watch Love Your Neighbor as Yourself be lived out. The volunteers at the Lord's Little Cooker loves these people that come to us, whether they're broken or they're homeless or whether they're on drugs. We accept them as they are, just like God accepts us. We know that through his love and his timing, people are changed, not by what we dictate or how they have to live. I get to see words of encouragement poured into these people, words of recognizing who they can be, not what they are at this time in their life, the patience to understand relationships take time. We continue to show God's grace even if the person has failed rehab one more time. There are two volunteers, well, actually several volunteers from this church that are there two of which you may know, Jim and Carno Reef. Jim often greets people at that center entrance, and he gives a little pound it to all the kids. He's very exuberant, and he brings that with him to the cooker. As a retired Marine, he has a special relationship with those who are also homeless and are from the military, and he loves them as they are, and he knows that through time, and I have watched it happen, he builds a loving relationship with these guys and can pour God's love into them. Now, Carno, she makes our oatmeal, and I have it on very good authority 
from several people that she makes the best oatmeal in Everett. And I think it's partly because she adds a pound of butter to every batch. <laughs> but she also offers eight to 10 different toppings. And as people come through this line, she knows their name. And I'm talking 80 to 100 people. She knows their name, she knows their toppings, and she knows how they like their toppings. She has taken the time to get to know them. Sometimes people come through and they don't even want to lift their head up. They don't even want to look you in the eye. But with her love and her perseverance, slowly that head is raised. Communication and relationships are built. She's able to pray with them. They share their prayer requests. And then they celebrate what God is doing in their life. One young man in particular, his name was Josiah. She had been loving on for the past two to three years. And he hadn't been there for a few weeks. And she was a little bit concerned. And one of his friends came up and they said, Carno, we know you pray for Josiah. We want you to know what's happened with him. He's, he's okay, but he's in jail right now. He'll be out in a couple of months. But while he was there, he accepted Christ as his savior. Yeah. God met Josiah where Josiah was. He didn't have to change first. He didn't have to clean up his act before God would accept him. God met him right where he was in his own timing. It's important to remember that our actions can impact people's perception of God's love. And I do believe it was partly because of Carnot's love for him and the other volunteers that he saw that God loved him. We had one individual even tell us that he knew God loved him still, even though he had failed, because he saw the love of God through these volunteers at the cooker. So we are able to pour hope. And my challenge to you is to be that vessel that God can use to pour his love and hope into those that you come in contact with, whether it's through a loving look, a glance, a touch, an encouraging word. God wants to change this world, and it will start with you. Thank you, Angela. Well, so we have everybody together in Jerusalem to consider the matter. In verse six, we read, the apostles and elders were gathered together to consider this matter. They didn't ignore the issue. They didn't just let the issue sit. They didn't let each person make up their own mind. They didn't stay in separate factions. They gathered together to consider the matter. And we're told in verse seven that there in fact was much debate. And then there's the record of some key individuals speaking. Peter gives a summary of the defense he made in Acts 11 to the Jews who called him on the carpet for associating with Gentiles. Barnabas and Paul tell about the work they have actually seen God doing among the Gentiles. And then James, Jesus' half-brother, quotes from Amos, a section of scripture that confirms God's intent to include the Gentiles in his family. So while these folks are speaking, what is everybody else there doing? Verse 12. And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. And verse 13. 
After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. The verb for listen in Greek means hear. It's the very same word used in Acts 11.18. Acts 11.18, when they, which means the Jewish believers, heard this, they had no further objections and praised God saying, so then, God has granted even the Gentiles repentance unto life. The Jewish believers, after listening, after hearing, Peter explained that the Holy Spirit had been given to the Gentiles as well. It was poured out on Cornelius, his relatives and friends. After hearing, they had no further objections. Carl Rogers was an eminent psychologist in the 1950s and he came up with this. If you really understand another person, if you really spend the time to understand their point of view without any attempt to make a valuative judgment, you run the risk of being changed yourself. We see this in Acts 11:18. Listening, hearing resulted in the objections being put to rest. And also in Acts 15, listening, hearing, brought the group to the conclusion that there was no need to demand circumcision and the keeping of the Jewish law for salvation among the Gentiles. Verse 19, it states, therefore it is my judgment that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. So the Jerusalem Council then gave the four directives that are listed in verse 20. Now these directives would help with fellowship between the Jews and Gentiles, but it's very interesting that they were also four principles laid down by God before, before the Mosaic laws were given. So in a sense, they're universal divine directives. And in our curriculum for this week, we touch on that really quite interesting matter, matter further. So encourage your life groups to be sure to pick a copy of this up and work through it. It'll expand your understanding of the richness of the passage. So while there had been much debate the individuals were willing to listen, they were willing to change their thinking. How hopeful, how hopeful to see that they didn't endlessly, endlessly argue, but they were willing to back down from their position when shown differently. It's very informative to read through Acts 10 and 11 and 15 and notice how very central the words hear and listen are to the narrative. The whole thing began because Peter and Cornelius listened to God. Really listening, really hearing, is one of the things that allows Jesus to continue his transforming work in our lives as we're learning to be and living it out. And Mark Mielbrecht, serving with Global Service Associates, is going to share on how really listening is changing his life. <clears throat> Good morning. So maybe some of you have seen uh, something similar to what I'm about to describe. On the news, you see uh, they've, they've brought in uh, a convicted criminal. He's going in for his sentencing. He's done some heinous crime. And you watch uh, the victim uh, or the victim's mother or father or 
someone someone that's related to um, who this person killed, right? And they're sitting there and they're they're weeping and they're sharing how this monster had taken everything from them. And then this monster in his orange jumpsuit, usually he's looking down, very ashamed, and says, maybe mumbles a few words, says he's sorry. And then they haul him away. They take him through those double doors. You see the back of his head, and you never see him again. And you think, thank God that they've got this guy. What a scumbag, right? And he's gone for good. Punitive justice. That's what I used to think. And then I started to go to Rwanda. As you know, Rwanda, 25 years ago in 1994, experienced the, one of the most horrific 90 days of any country in existence. You see, they lost a million people in 90 days, people that were murdered, hacked to death, etc. Went there about a week and a half ago with some people from this church, including Sam and Eliana. And at one point, we're sitting in front of victims and perpetrators of the genocide. 25 years had passed, and yet pain was still very evident, particularly on the victims' faces. And we got to listen to their stories. And the victims shared stories about how they'd lost their husband, how they'd lost their children, how they'd lost their every possession. Their homes were destroyed, their crops were taken, their animals killed. It's like a human hurricane went through their village, fueled by hate. And I realized as I'm listening to these victims that the only path toward healing and ultimately towards freedom was in her ability to forgive the perpetrator who sat right over there. Her ability to somehow work through the bitterness and the anger that she'd been feeling for 25 years. And I had much empathy for her. And then I heard and began to listen to the perpetrators. And they shared about their fear of possibly seeing uh, this person that they'd committed these crimes against. Why? Because when they were released from prison 20-plus years later, the only place they had to go was their former home in this village. And so they're sharing about their struggles and their fears, and they're sharing about their remorse, and they're sharing about their guilt and their shame, and they're sharing about how they would love to be forgiven for what they'd committed. And in some cases, they were forgiven. And that's the path that I saw that they had to take, is to be remorseful, truly repentant, and to be forgiven. And as I listened to both sides of these stories, which I'd never been able to really do in the United States, something occurred to me. Jesus tells us that we are to love our enemies. My friends, that is an impossibility, right? Obviously, without God's grace and his Holy Spirit, it is absolutely impossible to love our enemies. But it occurred to me as I'm listening to these stories that maybe, just maybe, the path, the pathway for me to love my enemies is that I need to rehumanize them. Not see them as the monster, as the criminal, as the scumbag or whatever. 
But to see that they're created in God's image, believe it or not, that they have a name, that maybe they're married, they have children, they have hopes and dreams like I do. You see, it begins to change my perspective as I realize that I could possibly, maybe, begin to love my enemies as Christ calls us to. And the only reason I can do that is because I went to Rwanda and I began to listen to the victim and the perpetrator share their story of freedom. Thank you, Mark. Listening, hearing. Listening and hearing allow us to recognize the work of the Spirit in us and the work of the Spirit among us. Listening for the signs and work of the Holy Spirit is discernment. Henry Nouwen, a Dutch theologian, theologian and spiritual counselor said, discernment is faithful living and listening to God's love and direction so that we can fulfill our individual calling and shared mission. Individual calling. Peter was called to go and share with Cornelius. Barnabas and Paul were sent out by the early church to spread the gospel and the shared mission. God was using each in their individual calling to grow the church to include Gentile believers and all were invited to welcome them. To quote again from Henry Nouwen, the question is not simply, where does God lead me as an individual person who tries to do his will? More basic and more significant is the question, where does God lead us as his people? This question requires we pay careful attention to God's guidance in our life together and that we search for a creative response to the way we have heard God's voice in our midst. It requires great attentiveness to the continually new movements of the Spirit among the children of God. That in turn requires an ear that has been well trained by the scriptures and the church's understanding of those scriptures. We see this in Acts 15. There was the knowing of scripture and attentiveness to the work of the Holy Spirit. Discernment, identifying the work of the Spirit and following his leading individually and corporately is learning to be, living it out. And this, the beauty is that as each one of us does this in the arena, in the arena where God has placed us, he continues his work to bring his kingdom on earth. Alberto and Rocio Castro pastor a church about the size of North Show in Alouita, a town located not far from the capital of San Jose, but it's a very, very poor area. God has grown their ministry tremendously and he started many outreaches over the years to people in the community. Here are Alberto's thoughts on learning to be living it out. El éxito es sin duda uno de los temas que eh, de lo que nada escapa. O sea, realmente hablamos de, de, 
éxito financiero, empresarial y bueno, también se habla de éxito ministerial, iglesias exitosas. Y es muy interesante ver cómo hoy en la posmodernidad se mide el éxito eclesial. Y básicamente se mide la, el termómetro que usamos es para medir el tamaño y los números. Según Jesús, una iglesia exitosa era aquella iglesia que tenía mayor influencia en la sociedad. De alguna forma lo ilustró en, en el Sermón del Monte cuando habla de la sal y cómo la sal debería cumplir el propósito fundamental que era salar y en la medida que pudiera hacer eso, esa sal era buena. Si una iglesia no logra permear eh, con una influencia positiva a la comunidad, a la sociedad, pues independientemente del tamaño no será una iglesia exitosa. La iglesia de los sueños de Jesús es una iglesia pertinente, o sea, que no esté desconectada de la realidad del mundo, eh, de la sociedad, de las comunidades donde está insertada, pero también una iglesia eh, relevante. Y el evangelio, eh, al principio, el evangelio de Jesús de los apóstoles, era una iglesia que tenía básicamente dos ingredientes. ¿Cuáles eran esos dos ingredientes? Número uno, el discurso. Era una iglesia que tenía una predicación apegada a las escrituras y yo creo que tal vez en nuestro tiempo ese no sería el mayor problema. Las iglesias predican la Biblia y predican el Evangelio. Entonces, ¿dónde está el problema? El problema está en el otro ingrediente, que es la, la práctica. Pero hay un gran vacío en las obras, hay un gran vacío en las evidencias de la fe que, que predicamos. Todos sabemos que si usted tiene un bote y, y rema solo con, con un solo remo, lo que va a pasar es que el bote va a dar vueltas, nunca va a llegar al puerto, nunca va a llegar a la meta. Eh, y si rema con el otro, exactamente va a pasar lo mismo. Entonces, la iglesia de hoy tiene que remar con dos remos. Por un lado, un discurso claro, sencillo y apegado a las escrituras. El otro remo, las obras. Evidencias de todo ese discurso, de todas esas predicaciones, de todos esos libros que escribimos, tiene que haber un referente tangible y real que se evidencia en las obras. Por eso Jesús decía, así alumbre vuestra luz delante de los hombres para que vean vuestras buenas obras y glorifiquen a vuestro Padre que está en el cielo. El éxito es sin duda uno de los temas que eh, de lo que nada escapa. O sea, realmente hablamos de... Rowing with two oars. So, what does our rowing with two oars look like here at North Shore? What does learning to be living it out look like here? How does an individual discern their calling and live it out as part of the shared mission of the church? Jody Beisner is a member of our missions and outreach team, and she also serves at the Everett Gospel Mission in community training and consulting. Jody is going to share with us how God has guided us in missions and outreach in developing a relational approach to poverty alleviation while she was responding to his call on her life. It's on. Self-reliant, strength, clean, staying out of trouble, or at least getting yourself out of trouble. Don't be a burden. Need help? Here's some money. Now go be good enough. Be acceptable. My journey of faith, I'm sorry, my journey of discernment started with the Spirit's persistent refusal of the status quo in my life. 
I was living in a faith culture that emphasized morality and self-control. Like the Gentiles in Acts 15, who were being misled by cultural bias, the weight of my Western middle-class version of the Christian expression was too heavy, and I was buckling underneath it, but the Spirit was guiding me on. Through a series of unplanned events, my dear husband and I moved to Washington, where I met new friends. My new friends at the Everett Gospel Mission invited me to one of their very first Poverty 101 workshops, where I met Nancy Brewer for the first time. They encouraged me to read a book called When Helping Hurts, How to Alleviate Poverty Without Hurting the Poor or Yourself. The Spirit used the Poverty 101 workshop experience and the words in the When Helping Hurts book to change my perspective and my worldview. And I was moved to repentance. Repentance of pride, repentance of my shallow material understanding of the world, Repentance of my blindness to the injustices inflicted on the weak and vulnerable that was playing out in plain sight all around me, but I was so blind. Processing this realization was not and is still not easy, but I tell you, it is where God has placed me. The Relational Poverty Alleviation Ministry at North Shore is based on the tenets of the When Helping Hurts book that poverty is the result of broken relationships. The fall really happened, and because of that, humans are living in a state of poverty, regardless of your financial position or cultural status. The Genesis account records that all of Adam and Eve's relationships immediately became distorted. The relationship with God was damaged, their intimacy with him replaced with fear. The relationship with self was marred as they developed a sense of shame. The relationship with others was broken as Adam quickly blamed Eve for their sin. Because these relationships are the building blocks for all human activity, the effects of the fall are manifested in the economic, social, religious, and political systems that humans have created. So if broken relationships are the problem, then relational reconciliation, the solution. And it is possible through Jesus. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. And that's from Colossians chapter 1, verses 19 and 20. North Shore's Relational Poverty Alleviation Ministry, it doesn't operate from the typical helper, helpy paradigm. When Nancy and I started working together, we started in prayer and we moved slow so that we could discern the guidance of the Spirit. Based on the good biblical and relational framework of local outreach already happening here at North Shore, we added learning opportunities to equip us for living out a highly relational practice. It purposes to approach the act of ministry from a posture of, I am broken and you are broken, yet we are desperately loved by our Lord and Savior. The Colossians 1 Jesus is bringing healing as far as the curse is found. 
and he can change the lives of the poor people, including me. Relational poverty alleviation is discipleship. It doesn't happen without Christ in us. It is worship. We show reverence to God when we love who he loves. It is discernment. Healing will not happen without the continual movement of the Spirit among the children of God. Here's proof that the Spirit is moving in our community to a shared mission. Last year, Everett Gospel Mission was asked to create a new class, Poverty 201, specifically for local faith communities practicing poverty alleviation. And Everett Gospel Mission was paid to create this class. At 201, you will learn how to walk with someone in various stages of growth, how to look for resources, and you will be plugged into a local network of people with the same vision for healing relationships. So who asked Everett Gospel Mission to create 201? And who paid them to do so? It was a government agency, the Snohomish County Department of Human Services. Our local agencies see the gospel in us when we show hospitality and love for the materially poor. Please keep this ministry in your prayers that we will continue to hear the Holy Spirit's signs and actions of where God is leading his people. Thank you. It's been a, a delight and a pleasure to be able to serve together with Jody. She will be at a table in the lobby afterwards if you want to ask more questions about our relational poverty alleviation ministry. And we also have a Poverty 101 coming up the end of March that we'd love to have you attend if you haven't already. Well, Tyler is one of our student ministries pastors, and he's going to share with us one of the ways that the church, the body of Christ, can help students discern what learning to be living out looks like for them. So one of the first questions when an adult meets another adult, probably one of the first three questions is, what do you do? And over the years I've come to understand, I believe I take that to mean we're asking what the primary job that you have is. What is your career? So we say, what do you do? Well, what is, what is the basis of your career? And I think we ask that because that uh, subconsciously for us is one of the most significant pieces of who you are, is, is the job that you're in, the work that you do with the bulk of your time. Um, students don't have that answer yet. They, they don't have the answer to that question. They don't, they don't have that context for, for what do you do in the way that many adults um, ask each other. And, and if you can think back to, to what that journey was like, we, we go through a lot to get the answer to that question. As you go through middle school and high school and college and you change your degree five times and then you graduate and you have four jobs that you don't like and then eventually you, you are able to tell somebody what you do. And, and by that, what you mean is, is the job where you spend the bulk of your time. And we learn over the years um, how, we're, how we're designed by God, what we're called to, what we're good at, significant pieces of who we are. I think the same thing is true with our faith. I believe that God calls every single person to saving faith in him, in the work and person of Jesus Christ, and that 
call is true for all of us. Uh, but, but within that call, there are some things that are different. You are able to represent your Lord Jesus Christ in a different way than I am. And God has given you gifts and desires that are different than what I have. It's just like college and different jobs. We are able to try different things to learn what this looks like for us. And I think sometimes in our faith journey, you have to just try stuff. So I'm pleased to announce that uh, for the first time in well over a decade, we're taking an international student ministry mission trip. And we are going to the Bahamas. And I see everybody does that exact same reaction until they find out what we're doing. Uh, we're going to do hurricane disaster relief on the island of Abaco. There's no little umbrella drinks on the beach um, but if you remember, it was actually about the time that I got hired here. The uh, Hurricane Dorian basically stopped over the Bahamas for 24 hours and did countless amount of um, damage and devastation. Um, and so we are pleased to partner with Adventures in Mission, and we're going to take a team of 34 people down to the Bahamas um, to work with a local pastor in bringing hope and rebuilding homes and neighborhoods and uh, doing the type of dirty work that's, that's going to be needed for, for quite some time. And, and one reason that I'm so excited about this trip is, is this type of disaster relief trip is a perfect opportunity where real need, uh, where you really just need boots on the ground, hands with gloves on them to, to move debris, can meet an opportunity to discern what is available for kingdom work. And, and as we do different things on a trip like this, some of my most powerful experiences and some of the most powerful experiences I've heard of people in their formative years are these types of trips where we get to go and see maybe a piece of who it is that God has called me to be. How do I live out this thing called my Christian faith? What are the gifts? What are the desires? What are the burning passions that God has given me? And as we just go and, and hear uh, from the pastor in the Bahamas and as we sit and listen to stories of hurt and brokenness and as we are just present for conversations and physical labor, we get to learn some of what that looks like. Um, this has been true in my own experiences. I've taken disaster relief trips before. And so in a ministry, in any ministry, any, any part of our life, there's only so much we can uh, prepare and plan for and do on our calendar. And so we want to be intentional with the types of things that we put on our calendar. And I believe this is one of the most powerful opportunities for our leaders and our students to answer what is God calling me to and how can I live that out? Um, but it gets even better because we don't want this to just be a, an event that Student Ministries does off to the side. We want to invite you to go on this journey with us. Uh, not physically, you're not invited, the trip is closed. Um, but we want to partner with North Shore Christian Church. These students are part of your family. Um, you are part of our family, and so we want to see as many people from North Shore uh, be part of this with us, to hear about what we're doing, to know the students that are going, 
um, to be able to have a meaningful recap when we're done, to, to pray for us, um, to be part of this in every way. And, and as you get to see the spiritual growth that happens of young people on this trip, and so what we, would what we would love to invite you to is, is we're not doing like a collection or a giving or a tithe or anything. We want to invite the church to an event. Um, we're going to have our first big uh, event for, for the church to come see what this looks like at the end of March. We're going to do a dinner and a cake auction. We're going to talk about what the trip looks like. And we want it to be a thing where there's face-to-face -face contact and relationship that you get to hear why we're doing this trip. Um, maybe some of our hopes, maybe some of our fears, so that you can really be part of this with us. Um, as we learn what it looks like to be students discerning our call, uh, going overseas, um, that all of us can learn what it looks like to be a church that sends those people as well. And so we want to invite you into that. We'll be at a table uh, between services, after service, to talk about our trip, to talk about ways that you can partner with us. Um, and we hope that you would pray for this team and these students um, as they learn to, to live out what this means. And hopefully, eyes will be opened uh, doors will be opened, questions will be answered as we figure out what God's place for us is. How do we be people of Jesus Christ in the world today? Thank you. Thank you, Tyler. And, and finally, um, when Del Moss was not able to be with us today, he had a prior speaking engagement, but we'll remember the conversation that we began on Martin Luther King Day. For the past three years, we've been on a journey for how God brings people together and how he prepares us for his kingdom. Bringing people together. That was the hope of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And it is the will of God. Just like Peter and Cornelius, we don't always find it easy to come together with people who are the other to us. It's not easy for us sometimes to venture outside of that with which we're comfortable. We can let our own traditions, our own misconceptions keep us from breaking bread with those whom we consider different. But that is one of our challenges in learning to be living it out, to see past our own traditions and to let God lead us into relationships with those whom we consider different. The challenge is to be intentional about opening on our lives to the stories, the hurts, and the pains of others, and to share our walk with Christ together. And we can do this by being willing to learn, by educating ourselves, and by seeking healthy application. We can continue the conversation of reconciliation one to another and all to God. We are in the midst of uh, forming spaces and materials for learning and dialogue, and these spaces will be an opportunity for us to journey together in community in listening, dialoguing, reading, and learning together. Learning to be, living it out. We're going to continue to do it as individuals and in community. We're closing our time together today by receiving communion. During the communion, the worship team is gonna be singing the song that was introduced last week, One Bread, One Body. It's a very simple song, but it's a powerful reminder that through one bread, 
the body of Jesus Christ broken for us, we are one body. The reality, depth, and beauty of this truth, one bread, one body, is clearly detailed in Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2 is an amazing summary of what God was doing in Acts 10, 11, and 15. So we're going to read Ephesians 2 together corporately because there's something tremendously powerful and affirming when as one body we agree together and speak the truth of who God is and what he has done. So at this point, I'd like to invite the prayer team forward. And at the end of our reading, Ephesians 2, um, I will give the scriptures for the communion elements and then you are free to receive. There are four tables located around the auditorium. Also, if you'd like to receive in your seat, simply raise your hand and an usher uh, is ready to come and share with you. At any point during the process, you can pray with someone on the prayer team, receive the elements when you're ready, and then just sit for a few moments, listen to one bread, one body, receive what God has for you in this moment as we just take a few moments to be. And then I'll close off our communion time with prayer. This corporate reading of Ephesians 2 was prepared for us specifically by one of our mission partners, Diane Campbell, serving in East Asia. Veronica Moss will be reading the leader portion and I'll be leading us in the congregation portion. Um, we want to not rush through this because we want to let sink in the power of the word of God, which is alive. And so as we read together as the congregation, try to follow my lead and we're actually gonna pause where there's a comma and take a breath where there's a period. <laughs> if you would like to, you don't have to, but I realize this might hinder some people from seeing, but if you would like to, feel free to stand for the reading. Why don't we, why don't we stand for the reading of the word of God? This is Ephesians 2. Once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins, you used to live in sin, just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil, the commander of the powers and the unseen world. He is the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. All of us used to live that way, following the passionate desires and inclinations of our sinful nature. By our very nature, we were subject to God's anger, just like everyone else. But God is so rich in mercy, and he loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. It is only by God's grace that you have been saved. For he raised us from the dead along with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ Jesus. So God can point to us in all future ages as examples of the incredible wealth of his grace and kindness towards us, as shown in all he has done for us who are united with Christ Jesus. God saved you by his grace when you believed, and you can't take credit for this. It is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done, so none of us can boast about it. For we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus, 
so we can do the good things He planned for us long ago. Don't forget that you Gentiles used to be outsiders. You were called uncircumcised heathens by the Jews, who were proud of their circumcision, even though it affected only their bodies and not their hearts. In those days, you were living apart from Christ. You were excluded from citizenship among the people of Israel, and you did not know the covenant promises God had made to them. You lived in this world without God and without hope, but now you have been united with Christ Jesus. Once you were far away from God, but now you have been brought near to him through the blood of Christ. For Christ himself has brought peace to us. He united Jews and Gentiles into one people when, in his own body on the cross, he broke down the wall of hostility that separated us. He did this by ending the system of law with its commandments and regulations. He made peace between Jews and Gentiles by creating in himself one new people from the two groups. Together as one body, Christ reconciled both groups to God by means of his death on the cross, and our hostility toward each other was put to death. He brought this good news of peace to you, Gentiles, who were far away from him, and peace to the Jews who were near. Now all of us can come to the Father through the same Holy Spirit because of what Christ has done for us. So now you, Gentiles, are no longer strangers and foreigners. You are citizens along with all of God's holy people. You are members of God's family. Together, we are his house, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. And the cornerstone is Christ Jesus himself. We are carefully joined together in him, becoming a holy temple for the Lord. Through him, you, Gentiles, are also being made part of this dwelling, where God lives by his spirit. The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and we had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Feel free to receive the communion elements. Feel free if you'd like to remain or come up for prayer with someone, people will be available. Join with me in prayer right now. Father, thank you that we are one body because of Jesus. Thank you that there is one Lord. Thank you for the variety of gifts, the variety of people, the variety of places in which you are at work. And thank you for the glimpses of that we've had these past two weeks. Lord, thank you that in the way that you ordained it, you call us as individuals and you call us in community. Father, help us to continue to be able to know your word, 
spend time with the Spirit in discerning our individual calling and then walking that out together corporately. Thank you for this, your body at North Shore. Continue to direct us in who you want us to be, how you want us to live it out. We love you, Father. We thank you for being the one who gives life meaning and purpose. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And all God's people said, amen. Mm -hmm.